You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which spotlights and elevates the difference makers in cancer treatment and care. Learn more at www.yourcancer.org. On October 17th, the Washington Post Live hosted Chasing Cancer, a live event featuring the nation's most influential cancer warriors, trailblazers, and advocates. With evidence that up to 50% of cancers are actually preventable, renewed attention has been paid to how lifestyle factors such as nutrition, physical activity, and early screenings may be the key to significantly reducing the risk for developing cancer. In this segment, two renowned medical experts discuss how patients can be more autonomous with their health and possibly prevent disease before it occurs. Let's listen. Well, good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And we're going to talk about some of the lifestyle factors that can increase or decrease your chances of developing cancer. Uh, with us, we have Dr. Ann McTiernan, an internist and epidemiologist at the renowned Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and Dr. Mikhail Varshavsky, a primary care physician at Chantham Family Medicine in Chantham, New Jersey. Dr. Mike is also a popular YouTube host whose videos focus on health. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. I want to remind those of you watching, we're eager to have you join our conversation. If you have a question for any of our guests, you can tweet them to us using the hashtag postlive, and I will relay, relay them throughout our discussion. Let's talk about colorectal cancer first, um, because we know that rates, uh, incidences are rising among young Americans. Um, and some experts are pointing to lifestyle factors like poor nutrition, lack of exercise uh, as the reason. Dr. McTiernan, what do you think? I, th I think we don't know yet why the rate is increasing in younger people. Um, and, um, but it certainly could be related to lifestyle. For example, we have an obesity epidemic um, and obesity is related to increased risk of colorectal cancer. Um, so we have um, people drinking alcohol, um, and um, that also increases risk of colorectal cancer. We don't know exactly, but we do know there are things that people can do to reduce their risk. Let's zoom out for just a minute. Um, obviously, many different kinds of cancer. What do we know about the types of cancers that are most affected by lifestyle versus cancers that may not be as affected? Yeah, it seems uh, cancers of the gut, so we're talking about the colon, the esophagus, the stomach, those seem to be the ones primarily affected. Then when we're talking about skin cancers with sun exposure, um, and then any kind of air exposure, if you're talking about asbestos, smoking, lung cancer would be the next one. McTiernan, if you... Uh... Yeah, no, I think um, you covered it pretty well. But um, surprisingly, some other cancers are showing up being related to these lifestyle factors as well. Um, they may be less common, so they're not studied as well. Um, but I think the, the main thing for people to think about for prevention is that things that they can be doing now could prevent a number of different types of cancer. So one of the big lifestyle factors, obviously, is diet. Um, Dr. Mike, what are some foods that you would recommend to patients that could re reduce inflammation and potentially lower their risk? Yeah, diet and cancer risk is a really interesting field of research because right now, the way we do research when it comes to nutrition is mainly observational studies. This is one of the lowest forms of evidence that we have in medicine. So our evidence isn't great. The things that we found is basically what grandma told us. A, that we should be eating our vegetables, our fruits, foods that are high in fiber, 
uh, and whole grains. Those seem to have the best evidence. If I'm recommending a diet, I would say eat a diet rich in those foods and then limit processed foods like the bacons of the world, the sausages of the world. And then there's some evidence that exists as well that is not as strong as the ones that help um, with red meats in terms of colorectal cancer risk. Dr. Materian, there's been some recent research about red meat. Can you explain that for us? That's right. Well, there's been research going on for years in this area, and um, several groups, such as the World um, Cancer Research Fund and the World Health Organization, have looked at this carefully. And the World Health Organization uh, classifies um, processed meats as a carcinogen, as the highest level of carcinogen. And that just means the evidence is there that if people eat a lot of these, they can increase risk of um, especially cancer of the colon and the rectum. Um, so um, there is some um, definite evidence that um, red meat also can increase risk. Um, it's not as, as strong a carcinogen, but th the main thing to think about is what is a serving size? A serving size of meat is considered um, about the size of the palm of your hand or a deck of cards. And for a lot of patients, a lot of people, that's not what they're eating. They're eating much more than that. So if we give a recommendation to keep your serving size to about three servings per week, per week of, um, of uh, red meat to keep your risk low, that doesn't mean three huge um, platterfuls of steak. It means... <laughs> A, a portion size, yeah. Because I think a lot of people are being encouraged to follow that type of diet given the popularity of the low-carb, high-fat uh, uh, diet. Does that trend concern you at all? Um, it's, it's something that's a lot of new research is being done on, like the keto diet is a huge thing people on social media ask me about all the time. And what we see is there's different results when people don't consume carbs but consume high amounts of fat and protein. Uh, the outcomes of that in terms of cancer risk haven't been as clear uh, when I look at the research. So we've seen some cancers that feed primarily on glucose have lower rates, but other cancers have higher rates. So to say that following, let's say, a keto diet is good for a cancer patient, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I don't think the research has shown that yet. Okay, um, and, and then when we're talking about increased risk or less risk, how much are we talking about? Because I think it's really easy for people to look at these recommendations and sort of extrapolate that if they eat this or that food, they aren't going to get cancer. Mm -hmm. it, it really depends on what, what you're looking at and um, what cancer you're looking at. So for something like processed meat, um, each portion of about the size of a hot dog um, increase, if somebody's having that per week, then that increases risk by about 20%. So that's for people that are regularly eating that. Um, but for something like obesity, um, somebody who has obesity may be at risk for increased risk for breast cancer after menopause, so about a 30% increased risk. But they might be at double the risk of endometrial cancer, um, might be at 50% increased risk of colon cancer. So it really depends on the cancer and what exposure we're talking about. I also think that when we look at the numbers, we see that 30 to 50% of cancers are attributed to preventable factors, whether that means dietary habits, exercise habits, uh, avoiding bad habits like smoking, over-drinking alcohol. And then there's one that's sort of less looked on by the general public, and that's getting adequate rest, which I don't mean just sleep. Yes, we need seven to nine hours of sleep, because if we don't get that, it has tremendous impacts on your health, uh, primarily on your immune system, which actually fights against cancer. Um, but the next one is mood. If we're constantly in a stress state, the mind-body 
and it's one word, it's not mind and body, the mind-body connection actually ends up harming your body by increasing the amount of certain hormones like adrenaline, cortisol, increases the nervous system that's the flight or flight response that we know to be the sympathetic nervous system. And when that happens, you don't have uh, the proper processes going on like rest, digestion, absorption of nutrients, healing. And when that doesn't happen, you have increases in cancer risk that people are surprised to hear that this even has an impact on their health. What kind of recommendations do you give to your patients then along those lines? So I talk about frequently the three pillars of health and that's nutrition, exercise, and sleep. The sleep one is the one that people feel they can skimp out and think that it's not gonna affect their health. I frequently hear people say that they can function on four or five hours of sleep just like anybody would with eight hours. And one of the leading researchers from UCLA, Matthew Walker, stated really well that if you round to the nearest whole number, the percentage of individuals who can function on four hours of sleep and still be healthy is zero. <laughs> so to think that sleeping four or five hours a week on a, uh, a day or a night on a consistent basis is going to yield good results, absolutely not. Your creativity, productivity, your cancer risk, your immune system, everything is going to suffer across the board. So I encourage rest. But then the second part... But just on that, what if you catch up, what if, what if you catch up on the weekends? So say you get four or five hours during the weekend and you sleep <laughs> for like eight or nine hours. On is the that weekend. your secret? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I have kids, so okay, no. <laughs> got it. Um, catch up works to some degree, but it's not perfect. So napping helps, catching up on weekends helps, but it's really the consistency that's key, getting the same consistent during the same hours of sleep uh, every night is ideal. Uh, and then the other part of that rest is making sure that your mind is at rest. We talk about acute stress having good impacts on your health. Those types of challenges are good, whether it's to your immune system, your mental state, but then chronic stress is actually toxic to your system. When we're talking about cancer risk, if you're under chronic stress, and you, it can, which can lead to depression, three things happen. A, you're more likely to engage in unhealthy habits like smoking and drinking. Two, you're less likely to seek help and visit a doctor and get all these tremendous screenings and vaccinations that actually prevent cancer. And then three, because of your uh, mood, your sympathetic nervous state is elevated, so not enough healing happens, and that also increases your cancer risk as well. Um, let's talk about exercise for a minute, too, as mm -hmm. another factor. And it's been interesting. There's been a lot of chatter recently about how, you know, you shouldn't rely on exercise so much for weight loss, per se. But what, how does that affect your chances of developing cancer? Well, exercise helps with a little bit with weight loss. And long term, it helps keep weight off. And it really helps prevent weight gain, which is one of the problems. Most people become obese by gaining weight over their lifetime. Um, so, but exercise might have some effects um, on its own, even, even beyond weight control. And we've seen in the large studies that uh, exercise reduces risk for several cancers, like breast cancer, colon cancer, bladder cancer, stomach, endometrium. So a long list of cancers that are associated with a lot of these lifestyle factors. I think if we put the health benefits that you mentioned from exercise into a pill where we say this pill decreases cancer risk, increases longevity, boosts mood, sexual, cognitive performance, people would pay billions of dollars for this. If I created, I'd win the Nobel Prize, yet it's very difficult to convince my patients to begin an exercise program. Uh, how intense do you think the exercise should be? Are we talking about walking? Do you need to like run a marathon every day? Yeah, this is age dependent, but our sort of standard recommendation is 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. Uh, let's talk about alcohol for a minute mm -hmm. um, because 
um, younger people are drinking more. Um, it's very popular um, to, you know, enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. Co cocktails are, are very popular. Um, but what should people know about alcohol consumption and risk of cancer? Right, alcohol and the consumption has gone up. Part of it is people can afford it more and part of it's social. Um, but alcohol use does increase risk for several cancers, colorectal, breast, esophagus. Um, the, you know, again, I could give a long list of things, but there's definitely association of increased risk. Um, and alcohol is also listed as a carcinogen by the World Health Organization. So the, the goal there is, even if, if somebody chooses to drink, to really moderate how much they're drinking. And the guidelines for most, that most health organizations are saying one drink a day for women, two for men. That's something where we don't have gender parity. Women tend to metabolize alcohol different than men and they can't handle as much. So that's why we're supposed to keep our intake lower than the guys. <laughs> and something I've noticed that some of my uh, younger patients do is when we give a recommendation like this where we say one drink a day or two drinks a day depending on your gender, um, they say, okay, well that means seven a week or 14 a week. So I'll do that on the weekends. Mm -hmm. I'll have seven tonight or seven tomorrow, and that's binge drinking. And when we're doing that, we're actually increasing risks of not only cancer, but other illnesses. Mm -hmm. And myself as a family medicine provider, I think cancer foremost in a lot of these cases. But we also have to think about cardiac deaths, um, obesity, uh, making bad choices when you're drinking alcohol. So really when you're overindulging in alcohol, there's a lot of bad effects that happen, and they happen in a dose-dependent relationship. So the more you drink, the worse all of these outcomes become, including cancer. Mm -hmm. Have we seen any differences between, say, drinking a glass of wine, which we know can have some health benefits, versus other types of alcohol? Or is not, it just alcohol across the board? Not in the, the data. It's, okay. it's, it's across the board, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, Dr. McTiernan, you also study chemoprevention, which is the use of medications, vitamins, or supplements to reduce obesity, inflammation, other cancer risk markers. Are there healthy supplements out there that people can take to reduce their risk? We usually say that for cancer prevention, rely on natural foods. You don't need to be um, paying a lot of money and get, taking a lot of supplements. Um, there, there may be some people that have deficits, and that's something to work on with your doctor, your family physician, your internist, or, and, then, and then talk about what, what might be appropriate for you but just walking to a store and getting huge bottles of these things and, and taking them every day or however often people do, there's, there's no known um, benefit to those in terms of reducing risk of cancer. Just to sort of piggyback on that, I love that you said that because myself, I'm on social media, I make YouTube videos, and a lot of the questions people have are about supplements because there's so many false promises made whether we're talking about essential oils, uh, vitamins, uh, miracle cure-all products that are peddled online and with social media and the current algorithms it's really become a misinformation superhighway. That's why I really advocate for doctors who are evidence-based physicians uh, to come on social media and battle this misinformation. Uh, frequently we talk about the vaccine uh, misinformation epidemic that's happening on social media. But cancer risk reduction and miracle cure-all products are actually a big problem. In fact, uh, I encourage everyone in this room to do this after this uh, conversation. Open your phones and type into Google, curing cancer with, and then stop typing. The number one recommendation is going to be curing cancer with carrots. <laughs> I'm not joking. 
And this type of, and it's solely based around one person's experience who had stage four colorectal cancer, started drinking carrot juice in obscene amounts, and quote unquote cured her cancer. Now this type of misinformation misguides our patients away from proven treatments, proven cures, and essentially yields worse outcomes. So I think we need to be honest, get quality doctors on social media, and try and amplify their message as best we can. Well, right, to your point, um, you know, many of us know very people who have followed very healthy lifestyles, mm -hmm. and yet they still develop cancer. What do you say to those people? I'd, I'd say it's, it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt. So if you wear a seatbelt, you're, you're not guaranteed to, to avoid injury, all injuries in, in a car accident, but it certainly reduces your risk. So it's the same thing with lifestyle. If you eat a healthy lifestyle, it's going to reduce your risk for several diseases, you know, not just cancer. Um, and it might make you feel a lot better as you go through your normal day. You have a lot more energy if you're sleeping well, um, exercising and not overeating um, things that can make you feel kind of sluggish. As you have learned about lifestyle factors, what individual decisions have each of you made in your own lives, whether that's diet or exercise or, or other things? Well, being a person that's trying to do a lot of simul uh, simultaneous tasks, like be a doctor, be on social media, do television, sleep is obviously difficult to come by. But I made it a rule that the minimum amount of sleep I'll get is seven hours. And in the worst case scenario, it'll be six, which I got last night, so I cheated a little bit. <laughs> um, and I really say, if I'm going to recommend this to my patients, I have to live by that mantra. So I really try and put in that seven hours of sleep no matter what I'm doing. Dr. Tierney. Yeah, I'd say I um, exercise. I follow the, my own prescription for exercise, so I make sure I do a lot. Um, and um, I'm not an athlete, so I just go out and walk with friends or my husband. Um, I do some strength training, um, and um, I try to keep my calorie intake low so my weight doesn't inch up too much over the years. Um, I've, I follow the alcohol recommendation also. Um, and, um, and, and then I try to get enough sleep. Um, and, um, but these things are hard, and for some people at different times of their life, many of these um, lifestyle factors can be very difficult. But there are many things that people can fit into their lives, even, um, even if they're um, a, a challenge. There's another factor here, so environmental factors. Um, I know we talked a little bit about this, Dr. McTiernan, but can you kind of lay out what some of those factors are and people, how people can avoid them? Well, the, the, some of the things we talked about, I'd say avoid carcinogens. Um, and so some of the things that are food, like um, processed meat or um, alcohol, um, possibly um, things that in cosmetics, um, we, and we hear in the news about things that are in cosmetics, that asbestos may be in makeup, for example. So I think just watching what's happening there. Um, another um, potential is talcum powder products. These um, uh, are carcinogens, um, and they can cause ovarian cancer and perhaps other cancers. Um, so I, I'd say to just be careful of what things you need. There are some things people are going to need in their lives, or they're going to be very difficult to avoid, um, but some things that they can make choices about. I've got a couple Twitter questions. Alex wants to know, do mental health illnesses increase your chances of developing certain types of cancer? Dr. Mike, that's a good question for you. Yeah, that's, I don't think we have quality research to give a definite answer on that. Uh, I think I can give sort of an expert opinion on it, which, by the way, is the lowest form of evidence. So whenever a doctor says that, please take it with a grain of salt or sugar, whichever bad nutrient we're talking about. Um, 
I think that it would, unless they're being adequately treated. So if you have someone that's suffering with mental illness and not getting treatment for it, that's again gonna lead them to, down the hole of having bad habits, not seeing their primary care doctor. Um, and how do you change your lifestyle when you're so focused on your mental illness? How do you exercise when you're hallucinating? How do you eat healthy when you can't even get out of bed? So I understand what these patients are going through. This is something we deal with. But if you're seeing a quality mental health professional, a quality family medicine doctor, I think there are ways to get around those hurdles and maybe not impact your cancer risk away from the average population. Okay. One more Twitter question. Pat wants to know, how does vitamin D deficiency affect the risk of developing certain types of cancer? The, the, the observational studies, again, suggest that vitamin D, people who have very low levels might have increased risk of some types of cancer, like, like colorectal cancer. Um, but when, when trials were done, that it, it's not clear that supplementing to a certain point is going to um, reduce your risk of, of cancer. Um, I think the main thing to be concerned about for vitamin D is, are your levels extremely low? And that's something a doctor can check pretty easily. You don't need to be checking every, you know, you don't need to check a lot. You could do once or twice. And then maybe you might need some supplements. Um, the problem is humans used to get vitamin D through the sun. And now we know that sun exposure increases risk of several types of skin cancer. So we recommend that people use sunscreen and cover up in the sun to avoid that cancer. But then the vitamin Ds might, might be lower. So I'd say check with your doctor, see if you need it. And don't, I wouldn't say take it otherwise, no. Uh, Dr. Mike, uh, cancer has personally touched your life. You lost your mom to the disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that affects your advocacy work? Yeah, so um, when I was a medical student uh, in my first year, I actually lost my mom to leukemia, which was a difficult situation to find myself in because the pressures of going through medical school, losing a mother. Uh, we just came from Russia at that point, I believe eight, nine years ago, and my family was just finding their way. My father went to medical school a second time in the United States, did residency for a second time in his 40s in a new language, finally getting on his feet. So to lose our mother was a very difficult um, journey. Um, from that, I'm better able to understand what my patients are going through, better able to uh, empathize with them. And it's made me more passionate than ever to talk about cancer. I've worked with Stand Up to Cancer, Susan G. Komen Foundation, any way I can get research dollars, attention, notoriety to the causes that drive cancer cures and research, I'm going to put all my effort into that because there's too many amazing folks that are losing their lives or getting tremendously affected by cancer. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time for this segment, but thank you both for, for being here. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and we'll be back with you a little bit later in the program. Please stay seated for our next segment. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.